You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a new sponsor we've got on the show. It's the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, specifically their Master's in New Arts Journalism program. If you want to learn how to write about the arts, if you want to learn how to be a cultural critic, this is the program for you. You're going to do it in Chicago land of fantastic art. And you're not just going to learn how to write. They're going to teach you how to use the full Adobe suite. You're going to get the basics on HTML and CSS. You can build your own websites. You can learn to write for the internet. Not a thing that everyone is teaching you. The application for this program is February 1st. If you want some more information, go to saic.edu slash longform. That's saic.edu slash longform. Go spend a couple years in Chicago. Learn how to write about art. But for now, listen to the podcast. Hey. Hello, Aaron Lammer. Hi. Hi, Max. Hello from Detroit. Welcome to your own podcast. It's good to be back. You are in Detroit, Michigan. Evan is also on the road. I am all alone in the studio. It's lonely, man. I'm sad here. I'll say this. When I pick up a call and I hear you on the line, it's, Evan could have been sitting there the whole time and I went to know. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> a normal intro. But actually, I've been trying to pick up an interview here and there along my path, and this is the first one I've done. I did it in Los Angeles, and it is with A.J. Galerio, a guest that I know you've uh, wanted to get on for some time, Max. I'm excited that AJ is on the show. Anyone who is listening to the show probably knows about AJ's time as the editor of Gawker, and he's been in the news. He was the editor who decided to run the Hulk Hogan sex tape. He is named in Hulk Hogan's suit. He currently has a massive lien against his bank account, um, and it's really exciting to have him on the show. I, it sounds like Aaron, he sort of wanted to talk about what this has been like for him. Yeah, I mean, I think people who are interested in the purely legal story has been pretty well reported, but I think we're the first people that he's talked to about personal side of what this has meant for him um, and what it means for journalism and other people who could end up involved in a similar experience. So um, it's, a, it's a bit of a cautionary episode, but um, I really appreciate him doing it. I appreciate him choosing to do it with us. And I'm really excited for people to hear this. I don't want to take uh, too much of their time, but quickly, Aaron, we have a uh, pair of sponsors. Tell me more. It's that time of year again, my friend. It's FIFA time. 
Oh my God, it's my favorite holiday. <laughs> I was actually wondering, because you'll notice that our FIFA playing has trailed off a little bit. We've been in the off-season here. We've been waiting for something to motivate us, get back on the court. Now, now we're there. We are there. The latest version of FIFA from EA Sports, our favorite video game for nigh on, what, like, how long have we been playing this game? 15 years? You and I have been playing FIFA? At least. It's something absurd. The latest version came out yesterday. I I can't even really describe it to you. It's like, it's FIFA, Aaron. The new FIFA is here. It's great. It they just a- keep making it better and better. It's got the updated players, all, all the stuff that you've come to expect from what is, in my opinion, the greatest video game sports franchise of all time. Absolutely. I can tell you this. I have been playing. It's not the same, not being in the same room with you and playing, but even by myself, it's equally addictive. It's FIFA. FIFA is back in my How life. How old does your son have to be for us to get him on, <laughs> on, the, on I, the I've been I've been handing him a controller, and he just kind of mashes the buttons, and he's like, he's almost as good as we are. Uh, well, thank you, FIFA supporters from the very beginning. We really appreciate it. Go pick that up, FIFA 17. I'll tell you another uh, another group of good people who have been with us for the very beginning, Aaron. It's MailChimp. I actually, I just sent off a MailChimp email uh, for a little project I'm doing. I'm on a Canadian little Wi-Fi dongle that's very, very slow, and I have to really think about every single web page that I load because I have to pay by the megabyte for it. I was never happier to be with MailChimp. They make everything so simple. There was no hiccups. There was no going back and fixing stuff straight out the door. Best email provider in the game. Thank you, MailChimp. Okay, here's Aaron with AJ Delario. Feel good? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I have to like go through this process where I'm like, don't be glib, don't be glib, don't be glib. <laughs> is that out of a self-preservation? Is that is that like a is that you don't want to be glib or you don't want to come across as? Glib? I don't want to come across as. And I mean, I I know that a lot of the way I've answered things in the past, I mean, there's a lot of self-deprecation and sarcasm. Um, So I'll try to answer things as directly as possible. Well, I mean, I feel like very few people end up in a position where the glibness of their commentary can have repercussions deep into their life like this. That's true. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't anticipate this. This is uh, You never get presented with something along those lines where how you are, where you've worked, things that you've said can you know, both bankrupt a company and also just like leave you with $115 million in debt to a professional wrestler at this point. Okay, so how many years of your life has this been the dominant theme of now? Well, it, it's, I left Gawker in around January 2013. But I, I think it, it really started about September of 2013 where the invisible handcuffs yeah. started to come on and that any conversations I would have with the lawyers that were representing Gawker in this case, it was always bad news and it was always, there's another worst case scenario, another bad day in court. And you know the original defendant list, which I believe was around eight or nine, had gone down to just myself and Nick and Gawker Media. And, uh, you know, then there was uh, some paranoia that had set in, I believe, at that point. And this was always something that was looming. And it wasn't something that was constant. It was something that every three weeks or so I would have a conversation with, you know, the lawyers who would tell me that they need 
more emails. They need my computers. They need my phone. They need me to remember things in a certain way. I mean, all, all the stuff that goes into kind of at least, you know, constructing what would be a, a, a case, but also being a little bit on the outside of it because I was no longer working at Gawker Media. And I, I think the, the interpretation by some of the lawyers was that I was a minor player in this. Yeah. Especially if it's something that's a, a civil suit. I don't have $100 million. I was employed by this company. At what point did you realize that a person might be liable for the journalistic actions of a company? I, 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 I still don't know the answer to that. Um, because, I'm, because I'm still, we're at the beginning stages of another part for me. And it, it still has this, this creep factor to it. Somehow he's getting $115 million is basically falling squarely on my head because, you know, Gawker and Nick have both declared bankruptcy. And I think the feeling was, was that, well, they're not going to go after me personally yeah. at this point. Um, because your assets are not in the $115 million <laughs> range. No, nor are Gawkers or, or Nick's for that matter. And, um, but... It, you know, obviously, I mean, there's there's more in play here that, you know, the trial is, is kind of irrelevant into what's happening now. Because what's happening now is obviously Peter Thiel is bankrolling this revenge plot. And the lawyers on the other side have to, this is what uh, unlimited billable hours do. You can right. keep these things tied up. They can do all these things. All these things that are happening to me in terms of just what... Some would see as you know harassment or bullying. I mean, are, are perfectly legal. I mean, are, are they ethical? I don't know. I can't answer that. But it's a technique that actually could be applied outside journalism. Also, it's a, sort of a dangerous part of the American justice system. Is there's no real penalty for jamming exactly. it. Yeah, and and you know the that's, filibuster. Of and this. and that's and you know and that's the part of this that's extremely tough to process. Is that you know after going through the theatricality of that trial and the traumatic experience that was that trial for, you know, I think everyone involved. And then to try to move on. And I, as soon as I began to start to think about what would be the next phase of my life, this whole $115 million judgment comes crashing down on my head. And I don't know why. I think the only reason why that happens, and I'm sure the other side has their theories as well, and um, that is what this money that is being bankrolled by Peter Thiel is, is affording these guys to do, which is to try to drive a wedge between myself and Gawker, to try to just you know pin what's happening to me on like how Gawker betrayed me or how these guys left you out to dry and and the one thing that's been important to me and which is actually the good part about this phase if there is a good part is that I've also had to kind of take on my own lawyers at this point obviously with without any money so there's been a lot of pro bono work done on my behalf at this point but the first couple lawyers that I talked to I, I told them just like look your job is to say no to these people like I'm as, as much as they want to kind of hold my life hostage right now and 
any kind of settlement talks begin and end for them with an NDA and a confidentiality agreement, and I won't do that. Confidentiality around what? Um, what talking about the case, talking okay. about the trial, probably yep. any anything that anything that the, the very conversation we're having right now absolutely would be would be yeah. restricted. The by way the way this is set up is basically just like I mean this will come back to bite yeah. me in the ass. I mean it absolutely will. My thought process at this point is just like okay, well I have 115 million dollars hanging over my head. They are treating it like it's like 10 grand, and they're trying to collect. Yeah. And acting like, yes, I, I, and of course, legal, I do owe this money. And up until the appeals process, they can do very, you know, aggressive and invasive things in order to try to collect on that. Have they done invasive things to try to? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I went through a whole, you know, what they call a financial colonoscopy, which, you know, required me to go through my last four months of spending habits and anything over $100 they then grilled me about trying to kind of uh, what I call like dad me up over like my spending habits in yeah. like the last six months, like acting like, well, you should have been saving for this $115 million. Judgment. Saving so you could get another couple thousand dollars exactly. out, out towards that like, one. Yeah. And he was like, you know, well, geez, you shouldn't spend a hundred dollars on golf and you should have bought yourself a lawyer, you yeah. know, at that point. And I'm like, you know, that's the part that's frustrating Yeah. because I mean, look, he's doing his job, but his job right now is to be an asshole to me. Yeah. And that's the part where, obviously, that got me in trouble in my first deposition <laughs> in terms of not reacting well. So I, I have to kind of you know, go into that to kind of be bullied in some capacity by attorneys who have, are trying to get information that they're legally allowed to do. But I, I'm waiting for logic to prevail. I'm waiting to just like you know, just have him say, just like, oh, well, this doesn't make any sense. You clearly don't have $115 million. Right. And the appeals process is coming, and we will wait until that point. And declaring bankruptcy would mean you don't get the opportunity to make this appeal? In order for me to declare bankruptcy to protect my $1,000 that was in my checking account at that time, yeah. it would cost me about thirty grand right. to hire a bankruptcy attorney. And every bankruptcy attorney, I mean, was excellent in terms of being very transparent about the fact that just like, you know, you are against a very aggressive plaintiff right now. $115 million judgment, which could be disputed in bankruptcy court. So you're essentially going to kind of file for bankruptcy and then potentially have it unblocked. You'll spend hundred grand to protect your $1,000 who are this $115 million you still may owe. And you will also lose your representation in Florida. That was what was... I was told really at a last minute type of situation because I mean ultimately I'm operating under the assumption that because I am indemnified by Gawker that and they're not going to come after me personally for this at this point at this juncture that this was not something I necessarily had to concern myself with and you know I, I was may have been naive about that I don't know I don't know it, it yeah. all happened so quickly I mean, and who then, can even offer you advice about this? I, I, exactly. I mean, there were so many conflicts like, at that oh, point. Oh, well, when I was sued for $115 million, well, that, here was my game plan. Was, and that was the part where it's just like you're still having these discussions with these attorneys, that, the attorneys that have been representing myself and Gawker throughout this whole entire time, who I've gotten to know fairly well, obviously, for the past three years, and who are trying to explain to me 
you know, well, if you file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, or something, and filing for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, it's not easy. Yeah. This is not something It's not supposed you, to be easy, yeah, yeah. It's not something where it's like, you know, a turbo tax situation. <laughs> you're, you're, it's some pretty dense paperwork that, yeah. I mean, if I screw up, will like, possibly come back to haunt me. And I'm, and I'm weighing all these options, and I'm still like, you know, why is this happening? And then 24 hours, it, less than that, I get an alert from Chase Bank, it was very good about their alerts, that there is a hold on my bank account for $230 million, which was put there by Pinellas County Courthouse, courtesy of one Terry Palaya. And I'm like, okay, now what do you do? And it was, it was funny because Chase had like, you know, said something <laughs> along the lines, well, we're waiving the processing fee. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> these guys are excellent. Um, but at that point, when you're looking at this this number, which looks like a pinball score, yeah, and there's like, do I get overdraft fees for right. Uh, right. like how do I do I do I stop banking there? Does everything just freezes? Yeah, and I so then I have no access to kind of just get any money to any prospective lawyers. I have like everything. And you're living so, in Florida at the time. I was living in Florida in an Airbnb, which I had rented and paid in advance for, which was you know, my lease was running out soon. Um, but it was not really that was the problem. It was more that that number, it was just like, okay, everything that was told to me from the beginning about that this would not actually impact me personally yeah. was bullshit. Yeah. And that at this point, this is what we see is what could potentially happen you know, to someone else. Yeah. The, the one part that I think that most... I would be very happy to be a journalist right now in this time period because you can see exactly where the monsters are. Yeah. Regardless of just like, you know, what you think of me or what you think of Gawker, you can see that Charles Harder, who's basically the firm that, you know, is representing Hulk Hogan, his business is booming right now. Yeah, he's representing all kinds of people. He's got exactly. Like a, yeah, he's got the Trump's got, got it. I mean, yeah. And that, you know, this isn't going to stop anytime soon. Yeah. And I, I think that. Most people who are just kind of critical of Gawker or, or any of those times, I mean, I, I hope it's out of their system. Yeah. Because, you know, right now, I mean, especially just with the hints that you know, Roger Ailes is going after Gabriel Sherman in New York Magazine and yeah. like that, this is clearly not just a Gawker problem anymore. And that's yeah. the part that it's worthwhile for people to know that somebody has to stop it. Yeah. And the only way to actually stop it is for journalists to do their job at this point. But I also understand how tough it is for publishers in this environment who are going to kind of just like actually have to make a decision where it's just like, okay, if we are going to say something negative about someone who's powerful or who actually has access to Charles Harder's law firm at this point, is that worth the risk? Is that worth the story? And, th and that's something that is, I, I, I think... Has, has not been as black and white as it is right now. Well, I think it would be, you know, it's interesting. I didn't even draw the connection. Um, Gabriel Sherman was on the show two mm. weeks ago, three weeks ago. Right. So we potentially have two guests in a one-month span <laughs> who are both going to be the subjects of lawsuits from the same law firm. It, it shows you that with enough money, these lawsuits could be an exponential force. It's not a hard to scale operation yeah. suing people in these sorts of situations. It doesn't discriminate journalistically across a wide spectrum of different forms of journalism. I mean, the things that Gabriel Sherman is reporting is, is that um, Ailes probably had him tailed 
had him investigated yeah. and may have discussed killing him. Right. Yeah. Like there's people, multiple people who said there's a conversation in a room where Ailes talked about killing him. That should be more on people's mind as a sort of a check on the who has more power in, in this balance. Hey, I'm going to pause things here to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress and sells it directly to consumers, eliminating the commission-driven inflated prices that you probably have experienced in some kind of a warehouse. It's an award-winning sleep surface developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that size box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. This is a pack that will have you sleeping better immediately. It's a pack with latex and supportive memory foam. It's a pack that costs a lot less than you pay almost anywhere. Uh, you're usually going to pay over 1500 bucks for a mattress. Casper's range from 500 for a twin up to 850 for a queen, 950 for a king. Anyway, buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. You can keep it for 100 nights with absolutely no obligation. If you don't like it, they'll pick it up for you. But I think you're really going to like it, and I think it's going to change the way you sleep. So I encourage you to go to casper.com slash longform. You get 50 bucks off any mattress, and you'll be supporting this show. Again, casper.com slash longform. Use the offer code longform. Support longform and sleep so much better today without the hassle. Thank you, Casper. Our next sponsor is Texture. Texture has put all of the magazines you love in one super convenient place. Where's that place? The Texture app. They let you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You can breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you most. I'm just browsing through this list here. Bloomberg Business Week, ESPN the Magazine, Hollywood Reporter. If you read long form, you're going to recognize a lot of these magazines and you're going to enjoy them. Texture has made it easy to find the articles you care about. I don't get just the magazines. I also get recommendations from the Texture editorial team, plus deeper dive personal collections. Anyway, I really like it. Sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications, texture.com slash longform. That's right. You go there, you get a free trial. It doesn't cost anything. Again, texture.com slash longform. Gain immediate entry to all the top magazines and start binge reading today. Thank you, Texture. How did you come to Gawker in the first place? Um, I, I originally came to Gawker back in 2005. Yeah. Um, and that was to... Simpler times. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I was, I was there to run a now-dead gambling blog called Odd Jack. Got the job not based off of anything that I knew about gambling or poker. I tried to mimic what I thought was a Gawker voice at the time. And eventually, you know, Lockhart had offered me that job. Then he fired me six months later when there was no traffic on that site. I mean, I was a terrible blogger at Ajack. I mean, there was this, this thing they used to do initially back in the, the 2005 era where, you know, most of you were paid per post, ultimately at the end of the month. If you were under a certain threshold, you got maybe half your pay. So at the end of the month, there would always be this routine where there'd be three days left and I would be like 85 posts short. So then I would 
frantically basically do lines on every single college football game there was between Division <laughs> One and Three, and just throw them up <laughs> in this mad dash to basically get paid that month. And yeah, I used to always get those kind of just very bemused emails from Lockhart at the end of the month. Basically, just like, wow, you hit the quota right on the nose again, which um, you know they let me slide with, but. When I was at Deadspin the second time around, I just had a vision for Deadspin that just like we were going to have a blog side, we were going to have a longer form side. I mean, we had already started to kind of put those things together. I knew I could get traffic. I knew I could do the scummy stuff that Will wouldn't touch and have no qualms about it because that was the business part of it for me. The writing part, we wanted to have a site where basically those things could live in the same world. Yeah. I was a Gawker reader. I've always read this stuff. I always sort of felt like the dirtier, scummier stuff was going to like stain the good work right. that was done, not bring down the whole ship in a, in a, you know, in a flaming disaster. Um, so as that duality was something you were yeah. building, did you ever sort of say, like, look at whether it's the tips box and the stuff is going in kind of, you know, hunting for right. scandal really yeah like oh god we could go too far this could be a problem was that even like in the room as that stuff was building up well it's it's kind of interesting you say that because i think that every gawker editor at some point has a moment where they're staring over a cliff yeah in terms of just you know very hesitant about pushing the publish button knowing that there's going to be some blowback yeah that and either and then there could be a story especially and this was kind of at the time, I remember the moment when Gizmodo broke the iPhone 4 story. Totally. And I was in awe of them. I was just like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. The news cycle has stopped and is absolutely focusing on this story. And, you know, obviously they got a lot of flack for it too and yep. were criticized for it, but everyone was talking about it. Apple sent the police, right? To <laughs> yeah, Jason Brian. Chen, they, they, they broke down his door. Yeah. And, and you know, as, as bad as that was, I mean, I'm like sitting there just like absolutely just like so envious. And I'm just yeah. like, God, I wish I could do something that would absolutely have that type of impact. It uh, felt like sort of breaking the journalistic fourth wall where I was yeah. like, I thought this is all supposed to be like well, page view fun and games here. No one was supposed to like swat someone. Exactly. And that, and that was the, that was a part. But I mean, it was just like, you know, like all of the publications that I had admired going into it, like always had that risky feel to it. I mean, just like I said, you know, Jeff Coyne's near press was so influential just because of him and because I remember having this moment where he took me out to uh, Lit, that bar Lower East Side at one point, and he was about to publish, but it was this full issue dedicated to the assassination of George W. Bush. And the whole issue was dedicated to if that had happened. And it was like my eyes lit up. I was just like, man, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen in your entire life. And like, I mean, it was just, I loved that rush. Yeah. Out of just like that I was getting from him talking about it. And I was just like, that's, that's kind of just the way I'm wired. I knew that I was wired that way as an editor. And I, and I always, I always loved that part. I, you know, I, I used to call it the professional wrestling of blogging. <laughs> Which came back to haunt me. Yeah, Yeah. but I—I mean, I and I always felt that just a good editor for Gawker or any of the Gawker sites 
was someone who kind of took on that role. Yeah. That I would take on that role and the rest of the staff could actually be smart and great and do the things that were actually just, you know, the things that I love to read. Um, you know, my byline I always considered was just 10% of my job. Yeah. And that 10% was always done for kind of business purposes. It's just like how I considered it. The pro wrestling, I'm sorry. It's a good analogy, yeah, though. No, but the, it sucks the, now. <laughs> the, yeah. That interplay among the editors and the writers and the readers and that sort of, I think it's some of the stuff that's made the tone of this whole Gawker affair hard to read because you know, the people who were writing for Gawker and editing for Gawker in that period were really talking to a very specific audience that almost knew you as characters. Like, yeah. I've never met you before. Right. Until you walked into this room, I kind of have known you as, like, a character. Right. You know, you've played, and, and you play up a certain kind of, like, scumbagginess and character, but then I'm also sitting across the room from someone who is basically sacrificing years of their life and towards a higher pursuit. And, and yeah. the, I don't actually find that incongruous, but I can see how to a person sitting reading USA today, yes. the nuances of that are easy to lose. They are. And I think that that's, you know, a lot of the part that also gets lost and this, the, the stories don't age well. And remember just like also just like, you know, a lot of where Gawker's nuance comes in is the speed of it too. Yeah. And we were also in a very different environment online yeah. to where a lot of these things that I mean, I think would, would clearly be jokes or done for shock value are now kind of just you know, put to a different type of audience and kind of just like scrutinized a lot differently as yeah. well. The one part that was, like I, I mentioned that thing about you know, staring over a cliff. It's funny, I had Leah Finnegan yeah. on this show and she also the way she described it was a finger hovering over a button and falling off a cliff. I, I think if we go back, she used both of those exact oh, really? phrase, phrases to describe that moment. Yeah, so it must I, be, I didn't work with her. It must be something that haunts the dreams of, of editors who've been in that position. Like, I'm interested in how you saw that line and whether you had regrets prior yeah. to this, which I don't know that you do regret this particular thing, right. but you know, among the many times that your finger hovered over the button and you hit or did not hit send, mm. well, like, what was that experience like? I mean, it's, it's, there, there are certain stories that you want back for different reasons than none of them are because they were published. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's usually because they're executed in a way that may have fallen flat or may have kind of been misinterpreted. Yeah. So, you know, some things that I had written that I wish I'd had the budget to farm out to another writer. I right. mean, th those sort of things. I, and the one major story that I wish I had the budget to farm out to another writer was the Brett Favre story, actually. Which, in some ways, is probably the most well-known story that you were a part of. I, I, that prior was to this whole I, I, story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just it's one of those things where, I mean, I, I consider the thing that I, I love the most is kind of being the producer of websites in yeah. that kind of role and, and working with writers that I love. Yeah. And trying to figure out a way for them to kind of enjoy the job as much as I do in some ways. And my byline is just filled with dicks. But that, that's also the, you know, the, the role that I, that I took on. And it's not, I don't want to kind of delegitimize those stories. Because yeah. the Brett Favre story is not about his dick. Yeah. What his dick did was basically prove that the woman who told me about the story of him sexually harassing her was true. Right. That's what that did. 
Yeah. But, you know, this notion that, you know, because we paid for that information or that it was done for page view purposes or clicks or however people want to say it, all that did was kind of just put nine months of work to bed and say, just like, yeah, she was not lying. She's not an opportunist. And if we're not going to hold Brett Favre accountable for his personal life, why are we always kind of talking about his wife's illness or his father's death or like his struggle with Vicodin? And every single person that I had talked to in mainstream media who was covering Brett Favre knew about this story. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that's the part. And just like, you know, they obviously couldn't do it in that way because they had just heard about it. They hadn't seen any evidence of it. Right. And Brett Favre was the most famous quarterback on the planet at that point. It was going into his last year and a lot of television companies and, and, and the NFL had built a lot of the season around his last year. It's interesting. A lot of the way this stuff is, ends up getting talked about, it's through like page views and clicks as if like doing an like in-depth, like months long investigation is like the easiest, cheapest way to get how many clicks you got on that story. Like Whatever. it's yeah. not, it's not a, a one-to-one relationship yeah. like that. But as you're going after stories like this, was there ever oversight from above about what you should and shouldn't do? Are we talking about God or Nick Denton? Nick Denton or, or any, or anyone else. <laughs> but yeah, Nick Denton was um, like when Nick, Nick no, Denton, but, it, but like Nick and I, we have the same editorial DNA. Yeah. Ultimately. And I think that's, that's, a lot of the reason why we did get along yeah. um, mostly. And I, I think that he felt like that I was probably the person who was catering to his kind of instincts more than anyone else. Yeah. So I had a lot of rope. Yeah. And, you know, that was, you know, that's a level of autonomy that's, I, you, you can't, it's irreplaceable in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. I knew that I was in kind of a situation where it's just like, well, you know, here's a guy that, is supporting me on a lot of this stuff, yeah. even though, I, even though there was a huge backlash from you know, readers or other publications or yeah. you know, people calling me an asshole or a monster or whatever and all this stuff. And this guy was you know, always the first in line to basically say, just, you know, how are you? And if I'd be just like, man, I'm like kind of just beaten up over this. He'd just like, all right, take a day, but then get right back to it because you're, there was never any question about what we were doing was true. Put right. It, that way. Yeah. It, it was just, there was always a point where just like, oh, is this true? Is it like a, a loud form of and truth? Was, yeah. And I, and I think, I think there's some of that. And I'm like, and believe me, I mean, I'm the first to admit that I, I reveled in the heel factor of some of the stuff that I was doing. Yeah. I didn't have any question about just like, you know, whether it was, if it was right, it was true. I wasn't throwing shit against the wall just to kind of start a reaction. I made sure that all that stuff was pretty airtight. Yeah. And then it was going to take the backlash anyway, because at the same point, it's just like, you know, my, my vantage point was just like the people that matter the least for the publication are the readers and other people in the media. <laughs> right. Personally, the people I got to put forward first are the writers and that's it. Yeah. And especially at an operation like Gawker, when you're on a shoestring budget per se, and you don't have the same sort of, uh, you know, a cushion to kind of, you know, have fact checkers and all that other kind of line. You, you, you really kind of have to put yourself out there as the last line of defense in terms of just yep. like, okay, if there's going to be an asshole in this situation. It'll be me. Yeah. And everybody else can look smart. And yeah. but it, when I edited Deadspin and when I edited Gawker, 
I think most people confuse my byline with the rest of the site. Yeah. And, you know, that, you know, Gawker 2012, which is always probably going to be remembered for the Hulk Hogan story, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, interesting enough in terms of just like, like I said, those stories that I stared over the cliff about. Yeah. Hulk Hogan was not one of them. Right. <laughs> Whatever the, the version that, you know, people ended up with in court, which was ultimately just like, you know, most yeah. people I think thought was just like, oh, that's going to trial. Wow, that's weird. Yeah. And let's watch this toilet fire happen. If and, I was suing Gawker and I wanted a story to sue Gawker over, it wouldn't have been my pick. Um, like, it, yeah, it, it's and, not the it's not the most out there thing Gawker did. It's not the didn't get the most traffic. It's it's no. kind of a random story in a way. I mean, it was kind of a, it was what it was was a more of just like an outgrowth of the way that I had done Deadspin. I mean, right. I was, I'd become known for doing those very splashy tabloid sleazy scumbaggy stories. I mean, yeah. and. That was something that I embraced in some way. So obviously people like who the, the gentleman who sent me the Hulk Hogan tape are going to come to me. And I understood yeah, that. Right. Um, what I never wanted to do with that was present it as a sex tape. It was more a story about a sex tape. Right. And more than anything, it was a meditative piece. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to put too much of a halo around it. Yeah. But if you read the way it's constructed, it's 1400 words. Yeah. It's a 33-minute tape that's spliced down to a minute, which is basically just to show that, you know, okay, uh, the guy that was out there basically just talking about this story on TMZ, and this is already in the public sphere. Yeah. I got a hold of it. This is what it's all about. So has this experience made you rethink anything about your experience at Gawker? Like, what kind of a lens do you see those years on, you know, now with this removed? Well, I mean, that was, that was the part, like, when the first judgment was handed down, especially the punitive damages, yeah. they were handed down. How long right? ago was that? Oh, I guess March at this March, point. Okay. So the end of, well, the verdict came on my birthday, Oh, actually. Happy birthday to you. That was wonderful. Um, but uh, once the punitive damages came down, they wanted to give me $100,000 and I believe yard work for the state of Florida for uh, all eternity. That was obviously something that seemed steep in its own way but at the same time i began to think of that as like okay that's a tax that i would be willing to pay because i love that experience at gawker yeah so much um you know i have to understand that you know that that site during that year there were four site leads yeah on that staff between leah beckman max reed john cook and emma carmichael right the rest of the staff was adrian chen and Nitsan Zimmerman, and Rich Juswiak, and Camille Dodaro, and Cord Jefferson. Yeah. It's a site that will never exist again with that caliber of people. Yeah. They were all people who were really hitting their stride for what they were going to do after Gawker, or at yeah, least I mean, after that year. Adrian was, what, 23 or 24 years old at no, that point? No, I don't think he was there. I mean, he was, the, you know, he was there for three years at that point. Yeah. But, I mean, it was... He's you know, a young the, man. The, and now, now he's writing for The New Yorker. Well, I mean, and, this, and the system that I had put into place was ultimately one that I, I wanted the writers to kind of have the time to kind of do the things that they really wanted to do. Yeah. I didn't want them to hate Gawker. I didn't want them to feel like they were fulfilling some sort of quota. Yeah. But this was all about traffic for me. I trafficked as a business problem I needed to solve, so I hired Nitsan. <laughs> and right. like, there's your traffic. And then yeah. the rest of the staff, I said to them, just like, go do whatever the fuck you want. And yeah. let's make the site work for you as opposed to you working for the site. Because, I mean, it's, traffic is something that you inherit with any Gawker property. It's there. Yeah. Like, you know, how you basically get other people to take advantage of that audience, that's, that's what I think the job of the editor is. 
is to basically just like, you know, have the writers on that staff enjoy that privilege of basically just having a huge audience all the time. Because it's very interesting that once you kind of, you know, leave Gawker, how that goes away real quickly. That year was so special to me just because of like the, the people that worked there and the people that worked there, you know, how close they were to one another and how everyone really believed in this style of doing Gawker that, you know, having, having it kind of just completely obliterated yeah. by, you know, both critics on the outside and then obviously legally it was it was something that I was just like, ah, well, that's a bittersweet ending in some ways. Well, it's um, pretty rare that anyone would say, oh, I would still feel like that was worth it, that I worked that job that year, even if my salary was right. negative $100,000 well, I mean, for that's it. A, that's the thing. It's just like, I mean, I did. And I, and I had actually I had written a story for Max Reed at Select All, kind of like spelling that out, when yeah. I thought it was just $100,000 that I owed. Because yeah. at that point, once... You know, Peter Thiel came was revealed. This was after yeah. I was just like, oh well, this is just between Nick and Peter Thiel. He's yeah. not going to go after. It's going to be like a, ended with like a char- <laughs> charity boxing match or well, something. Well, it was also one of those things where before the trial, I was I run a site called Ratter. Yeah, I was doing it for two years. It was a startup and was just at the precipice of basically, were we going to raise more money and continue, or are we going to shut it down? I wanted to put it on hold until after the trial to see where the trial left me. Probably not the best time to raise money for a website at that point. That's basically in the image of Gawker run by me. I don't think anybody was going to give me, the child pornographer, like any sort of money at that point. Um, But what I did think initially was that, well, all is lost, but... I do still have a copy of the sex tape and it is completely newsworthy at this point. I was just like, okay, well, how would I do a post on Radar that says, here's what a $140 million sex tape looks like and then just peace out and then just go to Miami and just like be on the lamb and just do that. And I, this is what I was planning on doing. I was getting, I was getting phones like, you know, I was basically going to get burner phones. I was basically going to do this all kind of just covert and have... <laughs> You know, signals and all these people I was working for it, and then you know, thankfully, some people talked me off the ledge and just yeah. said, you know, this is you're not out of this yet, obviously, and Gawker's not out of this, and I didn't want to do anything to jeopardize Gawker more so than I already had in trial. But that was my first instinct was basically just like you know that I that much frustration, that much kind of anger, and that much kind of sadness over just like what had transpired. It was just like I, I had that brief sliver of a revenge fantasy, so to speak. And I also at that time, I said to myself, well, what is a thing that we can do that makes this a positive experience in some ways for someone? Yes. So I began making monthly donations to the NAACP in the name of Hulk Hogan. And then I told the lawyers that, and they freaked out. Yeah. Rightfully so. And, you know, that's obviously something, too, that I... But my my thought was just like, okay, well, you know, obviously everybody's an asshole out of this thing, but, you know, let's not forget the racist guy. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. if I have to pay for this, why don't I start paying it now, but I'm going to start paying it in his name towards yeah. the NAACP. And I did do that, and then my checking account got shut down. Um, so, you know... 
at, at, um, but, uh, but also now that all my spending is basically being kind of you know, raked over the coals and I'm being kind of poked and prodded for yeah. every single amount of spending that I do because it's all supposed to go towards him in some capacity. Um, it's not the, the best idea right now, even though I think it's a great one and I think it's obviously one that's necessary in order for anyone to kind of come out with this with somewhat clean hands. What's, I mean, what's your existence like right now? Are, are you able to work? Are you able yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, I started, I started a new job that I'm not, not able to disclose at this point, but I did move out here to LA. We're, to, we're here work. in uh, lovely downtown Los yeah. Angeles. Um, I have a limited amount of money that I can make at this point. Got it. And a limited amount of money that I can take in. And, uh, you know, a lot of friends and family have been helping me out. Um, just until I get everything straightened out legally, which is not really kind of straightened out that this is going to go away, but what they are going to take from me at this point, what possessions of mine they can take. Um, they've, you know, they have, you know, Hulk Hogan, I think, owns 44.8% of Radder and all my Gawker stock and, you know, everything that he can take at this point, legally, he's allowed to take it. And I still have to find a collections attorney in California who will let me know exactly what the exemptions are here. But in the meantime, I will be hassled for the $115 million that I have to pay back up until hopefully the appeals process reverses it. Well, I mean, what has this been like for you personally? I mean, your, your comments in the deposition are mm -hmm. certainly like, the main thing that got reported yeah. about you in the trial, not so much that you right. have spent years of your life fighting um, against uh, a unjust verdict, in, uh, in my opinion, and I, and I don't really even feel like it's a particularly arguable position. But, you know, what what is it like for people you know, people who are not in the, like, New York media journal, <laughs> journalism circle to, well, to have was, this? I had, I had a, like, two funny experiences with that, where it's just like, you know, it was... I, and I've had these experiences before where stories blow up and, yeah. you know, and, you know, people have uh, from my past have reached out to me, et cetera. And just yeah. like, you know, just like, what the hell are you doing with your life? You're, this yeah. is a strange <laughs> existence. Um, at the time after the video deposition had dropped, I was back in you know, the hotel in Florida, just not paying attention to anything. Cause I, you do this long enough you don't have to see what people are saying on Twitter to yeah. just feel it. Yeah. You know, you can, and you, like it's a the, low text, hum. the yeah. text messages that I was getting from people, I mean, were from people that, you know, I was very close to and basically just like, you know, were showing their support and obviously yeah. like that. And then I had a friend of mine from high school who I hadn't spoken to in um, four or five months. And he was in London at the time and he FaceTimes me and he's basically like, all right, AJ, it seems like you're involved in a child pornography ring. <laughs> just let me know what I can do. And no questions asked. And I'm just like, I'm like, no, that's obviously that's not it. But he was clearly reading the scroll and then yeah. from my comments about, you know, what was yeah. I said in, in, uh, you know, that deposition. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a, a tough moment. It was a tough moment to process on every single level that you would think it would be. I knew it was coming clearly for two years. 
Um, looking back on that day and that deposition, I mean, ultimately what I was thinking was that there was a person across from me who was asking me the same question time and time again, who was trying to take away a thing that I loved. I did my best to basically not give them anything and also just did my best to try to keep control at that point. But then there was that moment where it was hour eight or so. And I, there was also, remember there was no trial at this point. This was just for the purposes of kind of information. This is a bunch of like lawyers sitting in a conference room kind of situation. I I was a year away from Gawker at that point. And, you know, I came into that with a, a lot of attitude and was there to basically mumble and grunt and give them a hard time. That was my thinking in my head and never in a minute thinking that this would come back to haunt me in the way that it did, nor the company in that yeah. way. Um, but I, and after, after I got out of that deposition, I remember G chatting with Tommy and he was just like, I was just like, man, I did great. I didn't give him shit. I didn't give him anything. Well, there was this one part. <laughs> yeah. And you know, but but never thinking that a people would take it literally, and I, I understand just like you know how it was edited and presented in court and presented to a jury of six who were not happy to be there, and obviously yeah. think of the media as in some way as yeah. not me. And we're in Florida, just in general. Well, but but I, you know, I, I think I think that I, you never do consider that something like that can and will be used against you in a court of law, even yeah. though that that is something that is basically ingrained in everyone's head. And that was definitely something that I didn't, I, this was never going to go to trial in my mind. I mean, right. this was something that was going to be settled. Yeah. Um, and you know, that was the part of this where I knew something was amiss was the fact that it was not because I didn't think that Hulk Hogan who had seemingly suffered all this embarrassment from this, publication and who has you know had his world turned upside down over this would actually want to suffer the indignity of revisiting in a trial format where like a lot more people would potentially hear about it who may have not yeah so that was the part where i was just like this is something that's kind of bigger than anything that's happening going to happen in this courtroom did you feel like Gawker supported you in the ways they should have? Um, I mean, that's a question that I go over in a lot of ways. And, I, and it's, short answer is basically just like, I think everyone was in over their head. Yeah. I don't think anyone knew exactly just like what the full scope of this was going to be. I think that Gawker at the time was also basically trying to kind of protect their company as best as they possibly can. Yeah. I think that I was in a situation which, I mean, especially after the Geithner story had run that, you know, Gawker was in this mode of being 20% nicer, which I think was just ultimately a protective way for Nick to kind of just like distance, try to basically just like, you know, have the, the good Gawker kind of rise above some of this stuff, even though that this was a thing that was actually going to trial. Yeah. I realized that did not fit in that 20% nicer category in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, and I knew I was going there and they had you know, told me this. I, mean, I, I entered into Florida never having met some of the lawyers that were representing me, them having not met me. And I get presented with a Mandela folder with basically every single thing I've ever done on the internet that could now be presented in this court to basically make me look like an asshole. Yeah. And I was just like, well, how do I, because you can't apologize. 
like, I mean, you smile, you're an asshole, you are expressionless, which is mostly what they told me to be the whole time, you're a sociopath. That's how you're going to be perceived. And I knew that, and it was, it was something that every day, it was basically just like, okay, you're going to get punched in the face again today. They're going to go hard on you today. Just sit there and take it. We're going to take this, and they shouldn't be coming after you. They're after the money, which is gawker. I think that it was clear that you know I was a major part of what the plaintiff was trying to present as a story of who Gawker was. Did I feel underprepared? Yeah, but I don't think anybody could really kind of prepare you for exactly what was going on there because it didn't seem real. Yeah, it seemed at some point someone would just kind of just like either move on or just like okay, we're what's the issue at hand here? But it, it wasn't. It was it was troubling on all fronts. I I. I I hated the way we were going after Hulk Hogan and his family and just like showing pictures of him and his family. And all that. I was just like, this is all dirty pool. This is basically just like an ugly situation. Right. And then everyone like afterwards was like, well, that's kind of what happens in trials. And I'm just yeah. like, all right. So there's no truth. <laughs> well, all. it's an ugly situation that the stakes had no real reason to exist. I mean, it's one thing, you know, um, I don't know, the Pentagon Papers or something, being in a <laughs> yes. legal battle about, yeah. a, you, you know, an American atrocity or something right. like that. This is about, this is an argument that only has stakes it, through the, in the justice system. Otherwise, it really is a totally meaningless, frivolous chapter in human history in exactly. almost every way. Yeah, so I mean, like, I mean, my, I, I was, I was shell-shocked and just completely just defenseless in a lot of ways. And that's how I felt. And it's the worst feeling in the world. And that, you know, was kind of, I, I, knew, I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't think it was going to be apocalyptic in any sort of way. Um, because I didn't think that that was possible of happening. And I don't think most people did. I mean, is it right to say that this sets a precedent that a writer on the internet or an editor on the internet... Mm is equally liable um, right. for what they publish to the publisher, even if the publisher instructed them to publish that sort yeah. of thing. And, and it was and perhaps the, even part of the terms the, of their employment. Here, here's the thing. Just like they, they obviously did not instruct me to publish that. I mean, right. I had a lot, you have, I like a lot of other Gawker writers have a lot of editorial freedom, especially at that time. I sure. Mean, Gawker was a different company in 2012 than it is now or was in 2015, 2014. And it was a company set up by design to give editors that editorial freedom. Yes, and you make the decisions basically just like never about the, the risking kind of just like having the company fall into the ocean is never like, that's never a moment where you're basically just, this is going to happen with this story. Right. I never felt that with that story, especially since it was, Vetted internally. Yeah. I mean, it was just, there's a reason it's a minute and four seconds. I, right. I mean, there's a reason these snippets of sex that are shown are there. There's a reason we linked back to all the stories that had already been talking about this tape. Right. So, and Gawker was fighting off. I mean, Gawker was used to lawsuits. Like part of the Gawker business yes. involved knowing that they would be sued. Of course. And, yeah. and you know, that's, I think any tabloid publication is basically just like, you know, subjected to that. Everyone kind of knows that end of it. Uh, it's not pleasant. 
but and you definitely don't feel safe 100 percent of the time but you know this was definitely one where it's like this was not an option where i was presented with basically just like look you're really risking the, putting the company at risk by publishing this story that conversation never happened and i don't think very many people have had that conversation at gawker and that's not to say that just like anything was you know it's not as reckless as that sounds but at the same time i mean editors had it was the editor's judgment in terms of just like you know what was something that people would read well it's impossible i mean like okay here's a scenario to throw at uh 2012 aj delario yeah in uh four years You'll be owing $115 million <laughs> to Hulk Hogan as yeah. a result of a lawsuit by Peter Thiel, right. who is being talked about as a potential Supreme Court justice yeah. under the presidency of Donald Trump. Yes. That, like, how on earth do you plan for, for right. these kind of eventualities? Well, and, I mean, that, and that's the thing. It's just like, and, I, and I've, I've gone over that scenario, actually, just <laughs> like and prepared for that question specifically in terms of just like going back in time. And, you know, this is... I, I hope this doesn't kind of incriminate, uh, I mean, what the, what the <laughs> fuck is the lose at this point, honestly. But, um, you know, I'm saying just like if I had that conversation with Nick and Nick and I are sitting there basically just saying this story will result in this yeah. culture war. If it smokes out those enemies, yes, you absolutely do it. I think Nick fights this 100% of the way. If it could potentially just like end Gawker.com. No, nobody would absolutely do that. Uh, you know, and that's that wasn't a that wasn't that wasn't at risk here. Yeah. You know, um, but it, uh, ultimately, I mean, this is this is something as as sleazy as the story is. All this is is basically just like me catching a powerful person lying. Yeah. That's it, and that's you know the the sex tape factor of it. I mean, basically, just like if people want to kind of just you know look at it and say just like oh well this is what you get for publishing a sex tape um i i also question basically just like their interest in this story like i mean nobody's kind of interested in that case if it's about a, a lean against talk hogan's house right so like i mean i think a lot of people are getting kind of self-righteous over something that i mean they're basically participating in at the same time right so the fact that it is a story and it's still 100 percent a story yeah and will now be a story forever unfortunately <laughs> yeah that's something that was never in doubt for me you bring up this idea of smoking out the enemies yeah. and now that it is pretty clear that um, Gawker is not the end target, yeah. but that there is a larger target of suing journalists and publishers uh, out of business and right. using the infinite resources of at least one person, Peter Thiel, but it's a tactic that could be replicated endlessly Absolutely. by the rich people. Uh, what do we do? What, what can be done here? Um, well, here, I mean, here's the thing. is is just like, like I said, I am not, I'm not going to settle at all. Like, and, until this thing gets to the appeals court, I'm not settling. This is an inconvenience. This is obviously something that's hanging over my head. This is not something I wish upon anyone else. Yeah. Um, I'm getting through it by persevering, and that's it. I still cannot, for the life of me, sign a piece of paper that in any way puts me on that side of the table. I just can't do it. And I, I, I think that more than ever... Like I said, this should be a really great time to be a journalist. Everybody talks about this chilling effect. It's already happened. I guarantee you there are publishers that are basically just like absolutely backing off things. And there's 22-year-olds listening to the show who are going, do I want a, like a career in internet writing where I'm live, you know? Yeah, and it's just like, remember like also like, you know, this is not, 
This is not about just whether or not I published a sex tape for why I got in trouble. This was a thing that was picked to basically set a company through this kind of grinder. And if this wasn't this case, there were five other ones coming right after it. I mean, this was, this was a tactical approach that will probably be used against other people who piss off powerful people on the side of the media. I'm in a good position right now where it's basically just like, I have no wife, I have no kids, I have no house. I have, no, I have none of the assets and the trappings that could ultimately kind of be... I mean, I'm never going to get a great uh, mortgage rate on a house, I don't think. You know, ultimately, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I had to kind of just make that decision when I was offered a settlement that was just atrocious in my mind, which was essentially just like basically, all right, you know, <laughs> sign away and say that you were basically just like, this is all your fault, or it's not all your fault, it's all Nick's fault. Or sign a piece of paper that basically just like incriminates everyone, or basically just like has to capitulate to like the demands of people who are absolutely just, you know, this has nothing to do with Hulk Hogan at this point. Yeah. He's just one guy sitting at the other end of the table with an uncashed lottery ticket, yeah. and I'm at the other end. And the, part, the thing is, it's just like, you know, I'll be able to kind of get through this hopefully for a year or two. Um, I'm not going to talk to a lot of people about it because it's just like one of these things that is going to be ongoing. And I have to kind of just, you know, I have good days and bad days about it. Um, I hope I wasn't yelling too much or sounded too bitter about this, all. this whole time. Because I, it's, it's, that's the part about this that's really hard is that feeling of being trapped. And also that feeling of being trapped and kind of just like not only being trapped, but still I have, to, I have a hearing on October 31st where I'm basically going to be sitting in front of that judge who is going to kind of decide whether or not I was lying on my financial affidavit about these indemnity rights, which are apparently worth money, that I was lying about them to cover up this fact. And then she can find me some more. Like, that's preposterous. But that's the way the legal system works right now. And that's the position that I'm in. And, you know, the, the choices ultimately just like they've given me are kind of just like, you know, take back everything that you loved about Nick Gawker and your job and we'll give you your thousand dollars back or your ability to make money or you, know, you can walk away from this, but you just can't talk about it ever again. I, I don't see there's any question for me. I mean, I, I definitely thought long and hard about it. I definitely talk to a lot of people about it. It's just not in me. Some days I absolutely just like wish I could say just like, is there a phone call I could make to make this all go away because I want my life back? Yeah. That's happened. But for the most part, I I, I just think that I would regret doing that. Well, um, thank you for being so open about this. you're invited back on if you ever want to talk about it again. I'd love to know where you are in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that hopefully, I mean, that's, that's the part about this. I, I would like to talk about this in another capacity after phase 17 of this happens. But, All right, well, um, I hope that people listening, um, oh man, this, this, uh, this episode made me a little emotional, I'll be honest. I got a little like weird teary voice there. Um, I hope people listening realize that if this is what can be done to someone over a... Blog pretty post. meaningless blog post. Um, what are the stakes of the actually important uh, truths that many people who are on the show are, are working on? And um, see you in a couple of years. Yeah.
And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to AJ Delario for doing this. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, who've been holding down the fort in my absence. Thank you to our editor, Mickey Capper. Thank you to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thank you to our sponsors, EA Sports FIFA 17, MailChimp, School of the Art Institute of Chicago, yeah, Casper, Texture. Thanks to you all. We'll be back here next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.